Well, good morning and welcome, whether you're in the room or online this morning. We are glad that you have joined with us and uh, glad that you're here and making us a part of your weekend celebration. Now, today is a little bit of a sad day for Great Oaks. Uh, some of you may know Kyle Moore. He's been around here for about two years. He's in back, so give a wave to Kyle. Kyle's had various roles here at Great Oaks, um, but we are excited for him as he steps out and away from Great Oaks and off to serve at one of our Kingdom Builder partners, where I think he'll be, I'm probably gonna get the title wrong, but it's something along the lines of Director of Operations for the Midwest Food Bank. So uh, give a round of applause for Kyle, for all the work he's done. Kyle, we appreciate it. Thank you, sir. You really just, we, he sits too close, he's too loud in the next office over. We had to, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. Don't anybody go home. and. That's how the new guy gets fired real fast. All right, well, if you have been uh, following along with us or if you haven't been here for the last couple weeks, this is the final week of our series, Growing Through Doubt. And the main idea of this series is that doubt is not the opposite of faith, but that doubt is the fertile soil in which our faith can grow. And there's a, I think this topic of doubt is one of the most critical things we can be talking about in the church today and in the culture today. And another pastor in Texas, I love it when I find guys who agree with me, he says this, if the church in America cares at all about stemming the tide of people rapidly leaving Christianity, we need to do a whole lot less shaming those who question or doubt their faith and a whole lot more shepherding folks through their deconstruction and reconstruction. And so church, what we've gotta be about is a place that's safe to ask those questions. A place that's safe if you've been around the last couple weeks that allows people to wonder, to wonder about who God is, to wonder about what God is doing and how he's working. And we've gotta be a church that keeps our eyes open for those who wanna wander, who wanna slowly scoot out the back door, who maybe just want to disappear. And we have to, as individuals, be intentional about our wondering. We talked in the first week that the idea of true faith is expressed doubt. The beginning of true faith is when we can express our doubt, when we can share it with somebody else. And last week, we talked about how our perception might not be reality and that God has never left us alone in the middle of our doubt. And for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, maybe God is asking us to show up and to walk alongside of somebody else who's in the midst of their doubt. You see, I think it's easy to judge. It's easy to tell people what they should believe or what they should do or what they need to think. And I'm a problem-solving minded person. If you got a problem, I have three answers. I probably won't agree with all of them by the time we're done talking, but I have three ways to solve your problem. But maybe what's more helpful than solving someone's question, than answering their question for them, is if we begin to journey along with them. If we begin to walk the journey of faith beside them, not as a tour guide, not as a guy who's out front leading them, who's like, hey, come here, come look at this, come see this, come think about this but as a fellow traveler, as someone who says, you know what, as you walk through this doubt, I'm gonna walk through it with you. I wanna explore the things you're exploring. I wanna ask the questions you're asking. I wanna learn as you learn, and I wanna go through this with you. 
And so as we think about the idea of a tour guide and we conclude this series, I think each of us do have the responsibility to engage those who are questioning. We can't just avoid them and say, oh, well, I don't, what if I don't have the answer? That might be the best thing about it, is that you don't have the answer, because then you get to genuinely grow with them. But I think we do have to have the right questions. And as we read the New Testament, as you read the Gospels, you see Jesus asking questions all the time. And I think one of the best questions we can ask sounds a little bit like this. Is the God you are questioning big enough? Is the God you're doubting big enough? Is the God you think you want to follow or you're following big enough? And I love this question because it forces us to take our eyes off of ourselves, off of ourselves, and set them back on God. You see, I got pocket Jesus. You, maybe you can see this. It'll be on the camera. They're going to zoom in as close as they can. But pocket Jesus was given to me by a high school kid when we were going on a mission trip. And Pocket Jesus is great for a mission trip. You can set him on the dashboard and he just rides in your car and you know that Jesus is with you. And if you've been in the car when I'm driving, you want to know Jesus is with you. <laughs> but pocket Jesus isn't always big enough. You see, I can hold pocket Jesus in my hand. And pocket Jesus is great for a mission trip. But when life falls apart, pocket Jesus is pretty useless. And church, if, if our faith is growing, pocket Jesus should be growing. I think that's best illustrated by one of my favorite children's books. I love to read kids' books. I understand them. It's great. So Prince Caspian is part of the Chronicles of Narnia series. If you're not familiar with Chronicles of Narnia, it's written by a guy named C.S. Lewis, maybe one of the greatest authors to ever live, just my opinion. Uh, and if you're unfamiliar, it's a story of these four kids who kind of stumble into this parallel universe when they find it in the back of a wardrobe in their uncle's house. And in this parallel universe, the Christ figure is a lion. And the lion's name is Aslan. And in their first adventure in Narnia called the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? That's how they found it. They find Aslan to be this good and tender, but fierce when necessary, lion. But in the second book, Prince Caspian, Aslan seems to have disappeared. They can't find him. They don't see him. A lot of time has passed in this parallel universe, but almost no time has passed in our world. And as the kids go back, People have stopped looking for Aslan. He's gone. But Lucy, the youngest character in the book, thinks that as they're walking through the woods, she sees the lion. And she tries to convince the rest of her party that she has seen him. And the rest of the party's like, uh, that could be any lion. We don't really want to discover a lion in the woods. That doesn't seem like the best thing. Let's not go that way. And so as they set up camp that night and they bed down and everyone falls asleep, C.S. Lewis says it this way, Lucy woke out of the deepest sleep you can imagine with the feeling that the voice she liked best in the world had been calling her name. 
So what's she do? She gets up and she begins to walk. She, is it my dad? No, it's not my dad calling. Is it Peter, her brother? No, it's not Peter. Who could that voice be? And she tries to lay back down. She hears the voice again and she gets up and she begins to follow the voice through the woods until she comes to a clearing and she sees Aslan, the lion that she has been looking for, the one that she's been hoping to, and she runs with him full of sheer joy and wraps her arms around him. And the lion speaks, welcome, child. Aslan, Lucy, said Lucy, you're bigger. And Aslan says, that's because you're older, little one. And Lucy replies, not because you are. I'm not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger, says the lion. Don't miss the truth of this statement. The more we grow in our relationship with Jesus, the bigger our view of God should get, not smaller. The more we grow, it's counterintuitive, right? We would think the more that we grow, the more we understand. And that's what we like to think about, is we like to think that we understand who God is. And so we get a box. And this box feels safe, because I can put pocket Jesus in my box. And now when life falls apart, when I come to troubles, when I have issues, when life gets hard, God's in my box. But God in a box, maybe I even put the lid on it, is a God that I understand, a God that I can explain, a God that when you have doubts, you can come and I'll tell you how God acts, because God's right here. He's in my box, safe, sound. But this God, this God can't help us in the face of trial. You see, the truth is, the bigger our doubt, the greater our need for a really big God. The bigger our doubt, the greater our need for a big God. And a big God won't fit in a box. We'll come back to this in a minute. But if you've got your Bible or your phone, go ahead and pull it out. Open up to Mark chapter 9. Uh, if you have your phone, you can open the Version Bible app. If you don't have that, I'd encourage you, take a couple seconds, download that. Uh, once you download it from the app store, you can uh, open it up and you can either read it. And when you click read, it'll give you all the books of the Bible. You can scroll to Mark chapter 9 or you can click at the bottom. There's a more tab. I think we've got a slide up there. It shows you where you can click. And you can find an event called Great Oaks Community Church. And if you're a note taker, you like to follow along, take notes in your Bible, you can do that right there. It'll save them on your phone for you. But I also want to point out, I'm reading from the New Living Translation, so if you are someone who wants to follow around, you want to make sure those three initials up top say NLT. I like this, it's just easier for me to read and easier to understand. And as we dive into the Gospel of Mark, we talked last week, but the Gospel means good news. It's the story of Jesus' life and ministry here on earth. It's how, what he did, how he lived, and it tells us that story. And in Mark, everything happens really fast. It's immediately, immediately the disciples went here. Immediately this happened. Immediately that happened. Immediately, immediately, immediately. You'll see that on our path. It's fast-paced. It's quick-moving. And today we're going to pick up the story in this situation where three of the disciples, the three closest to Jesus, have been up on a mountain. 
The other nine have been down and a crowd has gathered around them. And we're going to see what that crowd's all about in a minute. And if you want to go home, the the story that precedes this is pretty exciting. So if you want to read it, go home and read it. But we're not going to take the time to unpack it this morning. But Jesus in the last three, and his three disciples are coming down to gather back with the nine as we pick up the story in Mark 9, verse 14. When they returned to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd surrounding them. And some teachers of religious law were arguing with them. When the crowd saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with awe, and they ran to greet him. What is all this arguing about, Jesus asked. One of the men in the crowd spoke up and said, Teacher, I brought my son so you could heal him. He's possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. And whenever the spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground. Then he foams at the mouth, he grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I ask your disciples to cast out the evil spirit. But they couldn't do it. Jesus said to them, you faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought the boy to Jesus. But when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion and he fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening? Jesus asked the boy's father. His father replied, since he was a little boy. Spirit often throws him into the fire or into water, trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. What do you mean, if I can, Jesus asked. Anything is possible for the person who believes. The father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the crowd of onlookers was growing, he rebuked the evil spirit. Listen, you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak, he said. I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. Then the spirit screamed and threw the boy into a violent convulsion and left him. The boy appeared to be dead. A murmur ran through the crowd as the people said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and helped him to his feet. He stood up. Afterwards, when Jesus was alone in the house with his disciples, they asked him, why couldn't we cast out the evil spirit? Jesus replied, this kind can only be cast out by prayer. Now, this story raises a lot of questions for us, right? It's a little bit like watching the movie The Exorcist. Like, what is happening here? And there's a lot of things that Jesus says here that we're like, That makes me uncomfortable. That doesn't fit in my view of Jesus. So I want to unpack those things just real quick, and then we're going to dive into what it teaches us today. First thing I want you to see is the crowd and the demons are in awe or react immediately as Jesus walks in the room. All right, Jesus comes down off the crowd, and the crowd is in awe. Anybody in awe of God in a box? Anybody in awe of a God you can explain? That you can just say, oh, this is how God works. Nobody stands in awe of this God. The demons, they don't shudder or scream or freak out when God's in a box. But Jesus is a God that makes the crowd stand in awe. Jesus is a God that makes the demons react immediately. This is a big God. And we see it by the fact that his mere presence changes the way people react. Don't miss that as we walk through this. I think it's real easy to overlook that, but it's super important that we catch it. 
All right, we got to deal with this demon possession thing, right? Like that's weird to us in the Western society. We don't talk a lot about this. We like things to be scientifically explainable, right? This is the way it works. This is the way we test it in the lab. This is the thing that happened. This is what we see. We want everything to be tangible. We want it to feel safe. Again, because God's in that box. And if I can explain it, I can test it, I don't have to worry about it. And that's what we say we want. But it's not really what we want. We want something beyond us. Why else would shows like Ghost Hunters and all of these spiritual phenomenon shows just skyrocket in TV ratings? Deep down, as human beings, we want there to be something that is beyond us, something that we can't explain. There's a great French-Canadian uh, philosopher who wrote a book called Secular Age. His name's Charles Taylor. And in that book, Charles Taylor sets out to prove over 980 pages, if you want to grab it, it's a light read, how 500 years ago, it was impossible not to believe in God. Just 500 years ago, it was impossible not to believe in God. And what has happened in our society and in our world that now just a mere 500 years later, it's almost impossible to believe in God. But the truth is, all throughout the pages of Scripture, there is a spiritual world. And church, whether we want to admit it or not, there is a spiritual world out there that is active, that is working, that is trying hard to fight against the work of God in this world, and it's all around us. And the pages of Scripture are filled with it. The third thing. Jesus is a big God. People stand in awe. Demons react. Okay, demon possession. We'll come back and give it a little bit more work in just a minute. But it's real. Third, how do we deal with the Father? Can you imagine? I don't want anyone to think that we're just skipping over the painful stuff in Scripture. Many of us in here are dads or moms or grandpas or grandmas. And if our kid or our grandkid was dealing with the things that this dad's kids are dealing with, we'd be crushed. Can you imagine living in that day when you have to have open flame to cook all your food? Starting the fire to get dinner, going in and getting dinner, and coming out and finding your son running head first into a fire? Because this being that's living inside of him is out to destroy him. Or going down to the river to get water. And as you being down to scoop water, this being that's inside your son throws him into the water to try to kill him. Imagine the pain of watching the seizure come over him. His body go rigid. You hear his teeth grind. This dad is at his wit's end. We can only imagine that if this is us, we would have been to every doctor in the village, right? Can you help my son? Can you help? Can you heal him? Is there something we can do? And then you hear this story of these disciples of Jesus who have been going out and through the villages, who have been healing people, healing people who are sick for years, healing people who seem to react or maybe have a demon like your son does, and they, bring, they come to him and they heal him. That's what the disciples have been out doing, and so he comes to them. Maybe this is the one. 
Maybe these are the guys who finally will heal my son. And they fail. They can't. For one reason or another, disciples can't cast the demon out. And in walks Jesus. You're your last hope. Nobody else can. Your disciples can't. If you can, I don't think it's unrealistic for this dad to look at Jesus in this situation and say, if, I've tried everything else. The Greek in this text is actually an inaudible scream. An inaudible groan that this dad just cries out to Jesus with desperation, please. When Jesus says, if I can do whatever I want, pretty much, right? Father says, I believe, help my unbelief. Help me see, help me believe. I've tried to believe. I believed at every other doctor we went to. I believed when we came to your disciples. I want to believe now. Have you been there? Have you felt that hurt? He's desperate. When we're desperate, the things we say aren't always rational because they're coming from places of pain and hurt and need that we want more than anything. Fourth and final. We can't ignore the fact that in this passage, Jesus' words seem harsh. They seem a little bit hard. Faithless people, how long must I put up with you? Anybody feel that way about your teenage kids every once in a while? Like, how long is your room going to be dirty, right? That's what I think. My kids will be here next service. They'll love to hear that. Jesus is looking at his disciples. Disciples who have been healing people, who have been casting out demons. And I wonder when he says to them at the end of this passage, this can only be cast out by prayer. Prayer is what? Prayer is a verbal communication that we are dependent on God. And I just can't help but wonder if maybe as the disciples tried to cast out this demon, they'd gotten a little too big for their britches. Hey, we've done it before. It's just a demon. We can cast that out. And all of a sudden, it became a little bit about who they were and not who the God who works in their life is. And Jesus is reminding them, this is not about you. It's not about us. It's not about me. It's about the God who is bigger, who makes crowds stand in awe, who doesn't fit in our box. And it's about his work and in his name and in his power that the demons will come out. And that's the first hard thing he says. Then he says, anything is possible if you believe. Oh, this is one of those verses that gets a lot of people in a lot of trouble, right? If I just believe it, it'll happen. If I just believe God can work, he'll heal this situation, he'll fix this relationship, he'll take away my doubt, he'll take away my questions. Just because it's possible doesn't mean it will happen. God is not like a cosmic Santa Claus 
well, God, I did all these good things. Here's my nice list. I did it, God. Now you have to give me this. That's not the way God works. It doesn't become this like, here's my good stuff. Here's all the good things I did, God. You owe this to me. You owe me the presents under the tree. I get what I want now. God's like, no, 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 no. That's actually a belief system that I think is killing the church today. But we won't dive too deep in that. That's another sermon. Come back. I'm sure it'll come soon enough. The truth is, when you take the lid off the box, we can't predict how or when God will work. I can't tell you why the things in your life happen. I can tell you that I believe the God outside the box is big enough to stop him if he wants. But sometimes God just doesn't take it away. Sometimes we don't get answers. Sometimes we're left with more questions. And sometimes life's just hard. And in those times, this God in the box is useless. But a God who's bigger than my pain, a God who I can run to, a God I can cry to, that matters. The bigger our doubt, the greater our need for a big God. So let's look in the little bit of time we have left at three things this passage teaches us about that big God or about why we need a big God. First, a big God allows us to trust him when life is falling apart. The father in this story doesn't come to Jesus looking for a God who can tell him what he already knows. He needs a God who makes the crowd stand in awe. He needs a God who the demons fear. He wants to believe in a God who does unbelievable things. You see, we worship that kind of God. Pages of scripture are filled with that kind of God. And one of my favorite stories that shows us how God is at work when we can't see him in the midst of that pain is about a man named Elisha. So Elisha is a prophet, 2 Kings, Old Testament. He's leading the people. He's made the king mad, right? The, not the Israelite king, but the other king who's trying to capture the Israelites. Elisha keeps telling the Israelite king, hey, this is where he's going to act. And the king of Amram, his servants come to him and he's like, listen, we don't know how he's doing it, but Elisha knows what you whisper in your bedroom. He knows everything that's going on. We can't figure it out. And he's like, then go get him and find him. So they go out and they find Elisha and his servant, two of them in this little hut. And Elisha's servant goes out to get drink water, get a drink of water in the morning. He walks out and all he sees on the hill around him are Amram's soldiers surrounding them. Can you, I'm, I'm going to like, oh my gosh, we're in trouble. He walks back in pretty calm. Hey, Elisha, uh, we are surrounded by the king's soldiers. This is Elisha's response in 2 Kings 6. Don't be afraid, Elisha told him, for there are more on our side than on theirs. Then Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes and let him see. The Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked around, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. God had soldiers all the way around, Elisha and his servant, of the spiritual side, on the good guy's side who were going to protect them 
And Elisha and his servant walked out. You see, a God who's bigger than we can comprehend has the power and ability to act outside of our comprehension. We sing songs about this all the time. Songs like, this is how I fight my battles. Songs like, whom shall I fear? The God of angel armies is on my side. Or for those of us who grew up singing the, song, the hymns, a mighty fortress is our God. Do we believe that? If you're here today and you're wondering, can I trust in this God? Your doubt, your heart, your questions seem to be wanting to push you away from God. I'm going to encourage you to draw closer. Closer to friends who will believe when it's too hard for you to believe. And remember, you're not alone on this journey. God is with you. We don't always know why he's acting the way he's acting, but he hasn't left you in the midst of it. Secondly, a big God allows us to be honest even when our honesty is painful. This dad cries out, I want to believe. Help my unbelief. When we come to God in the midst of our trials and doubts, we have to come honest. We don't need to clean ourselves up or speak in nice terms. If you feel like your raw emotions are too much for God to handle, it might be a sign your God's in a box. And if that's you today and you're like, ah, mm -mm. I was taught to pray. We close our eyes, we bow our heads, we sit and we pray in soft, sweet voices. If that's you today, I want to encourage you to go home and read the Psalms. That was me. I thought that's how we prayed, right? You have to bow your head. You have to close your eyes. You have to fold your hands. And then God will answer you. If you try to pray driving like that, it does not work out well. But if you begin to read the Psalms, you see a whole different kind of prayer. Let me read two of them. Psalm 69, verse 1 through 4. Save me, O God, for the floodwaters are around my neck. Deeper and deeper I sink in the mire. I can't find a foothold. I'm in deep water and the floods are overwhelming me. I'm exhausted from crying for help. My throat is parched. My eyes are swollen with weeping, waiting for my God to help me. Those who hate me without cause outnumber the hairs of my head. He probably had more hair to outnumber than I do. Many enemies tried to destroy me with lies demanding that I give back what I didn't steal. I don't think he's praying real quiet and sweet prayers. Psalm 74, we no longer see your miraculous signs. All the prophets are gone and no one can tell us when it will end. How long, O oh God, will you allow our enemies to insult you? Will you let them dishonor your name forever? Why do you hold back your strong right hand, unleash your powerful fist, and destroy them? I need to say right there, just because you pray it doesn't mean God will do it. But can we be that raw and that honest? You see, if our God is big, we're not afraid. My God's big enough that when I'm angry and I come to him angry and I pray and I'm angry at God, he doesn't go, oh no, what am I going to do? Jason's angry again. Uh-oh. I don't know. When Jason gets angry, it's a little scary. I don't know what I'm going to do. God says, bring it. Bring your anger. Bring your tears. Bring your sadness. Bring your questions. I'm big enough. I can carry it. 
Lastly, a big God allows us to walk with others. A big God allows us to be fellow journeyers on this journey of faith. When we have a big view of God and we're worshiping a big God, it allows us to walk right in the midst of our friends' doubts and questions because we don't have to have the answers. We just have to hold them in, our, in their pain. We just have to love them where they are. This week I had a chance to go to one of our life groups here at Great Oaks, and as I sat in that life group, it was an honor and a privilege to be there. But it took me all of about three minutes to figure out that this life group wasn't just about the surface stuff. Because one family brought up this thing that they're going through, deeply personal, deeply painful. And all of a sudden, somebody across the, other li- across the life group said, I've been there. I know what that pain feels like. Not exactly, but I know what it feels like to walk through something like that. Someone else said, this is how I'm praying for you as you walk through this experience. It's what it looked like to be a fellow traveler. We can't do this journey alone. We need fellow travelers. And if you're not in a life group, I would highly recommend you find Pastor Chase after church today and get yourself signed up. In the midst of our doubts and our questions, we need people to journey with us. The bigger our doubt, the greater our need for a big God. So church, as we begin this journey together, whether you're just tuning in for the first time and you're like, I don't even know if I'm coming back next week or you've been here longer than I've been here. I want want this to be the core of how we grow together on this journey. As we grow, our Jesus has to grow. God's not gonna get smaller the more we know about him. The more we walk through life together, he's gonna get bigger and we're gonna discover more and more and more of him together. And church, we have to embrace questions and doubts because they cause us to wonder more deeply about the character and work of God in this culture and in this world. We have to be a place where it's okay to ask questions and express doubt. If you're here today and you've got those questions and those doubts and you're like, I could never ask that. I would never tell you that. You might think less of me. I promise you, I will not. And I promise you, if someone here does, come talk to me. I'll go talk to them. It'll be a great chat. It'll be fun. We'll have coffee. We have, if we're going to be passionate about helping others take their step in following God, we have to do it by giving them space to express their doubt putting our arm on their shoulder and saying, I'm going to walk with you. Our God is good. Our God is the God who calms the storm. He's the God who walked to the cross. And he's the God who on Sunday morning walked out of the tomb. Said, you can't keep me in a box. I'm too big and I love you too much. That's the God we worship. That's the God we serve. 
That's the God who's the foundation of this place. And that's the God we journey with. Will you pray with me? God, we trust that you are big enough to walk with us in our deepest pain, in our biggest questions, in the biggest unknown. We pray that we would experience you as big enough. God, we're sorry. We're sorry for the times we put you in a box. We're sorry for the times that we think pocket Jesus is enough. God, we are thankful for your grace and your mercy that forgives us. God, give us the strength to not put Jesus in the box for those we love. To not come up with simple little answers. But God, help us to walk alongside this journey with them. To love them like you love them. To welcome them in. And to show them a God who's bigger than they ever imagined and can do more than they ever dreamed. It's to that God that we pray. In the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen.